Hello, welcome to MLEX's weekly podcast covering the most pressing issues in regulatory affairs with the assistance of our team of reporters around the world. My name is James Paniki from MLEX's Asia-Pacific team. Thanks for your company. Now, there are those who had assumed that with Democrats being able to muster an absolute majority in both houses of the US Congress, the Biden administration would proceed with an ambitious play to overhaul antitrust laws. Well, not so fast. Dave Pereira from our DC team is reminding us that having a majority in the House of Representatives and a slim majority in the Senate might not be enough to push through those antitrust changes. And then we'll cross to London for an update on one of the most controversial Brexit issues around, the status of Northern Ireland. We'll get to that story in just over 10 minutes from now. First up, though, to the US. Dave Pereira is an MLEX correspondent in Washington, D.C., and he covers tech issues from the US Capitol. And I'm pleased to say that he is with us now. Um, Okay, Dave, when Democrats captured the Senate after the US national cycle ended in January, uh, they were quick to promise a big, bold agenda. Why were they so confident in in making that promise? So they they were confident because... For the first time in a long time, in about a decade, Democrats had a, a unified control over the federal government. That, that's to say that they had control of both chambers of Congress, the House and the Senate, as well as the presidency. And unified governments in American politics are historically fertile times for, for regulation because the, the threshold for getting things through Congress is obviously a lot easier when you control uh, both chambers and you can count on somebody in the White House to, to sign the bills that come out uh, the other end. Uh, this has been true, uh, that unified government is, is good for regulation under Republicans and Democrats. President Obama used Obama, uh, unified government to uh, uh, pass the Affordable Care Act to uh, overhaul financial regulations. And there, there are uh, indicators that uh, President Joe Biden has been emboldened by uh, his party's uh, newly arrived status of uh, having unified government. Okay, but does the existence of unified government necessarily mean that a big, bold uh, antitrust proposal will in fact become law? For example, uh, in m and the, the the shifting of the burden of proof on the acquiring company Uh, or requiring a dominant company to separate its lines of business. These are all ideas that are out there, but are those objectives realistic given the political circumstances? So um, that that is, those are definitely ambitions that some Democrats at least have, but now we have to go down the sort of uh, topsy-turvy world of uh, uh, American governance, uh, which, which right now, uh, even in unified government, makes it very hard to get things done. So in a parliamentary system, whoever has a majority uh, of parliament can get their program enacted. In the U.S., the bar is higher than even that uh, because you don't have full legislative control of the Senate unless you have a supermajority. That's to say, unless you have three-fifths of the Senate, which uh, translates into 60 senators. This is because of an arcane, uh, arcane procedure that, that uh, I believe is unique to the United States, and that's the filibuster. And that is, it's a rule that says that uh, before a question can come up for a vote, in order to cut off debate, 
you need three-fifths of the senators voting in favor of that. And if you don't have that, then the debate can continue. I mean, we've all seen Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Legislation can be uh, postponed or even blocked altogether, right? It, it, it can, but you haven't seen those marathon speeches since the 70s. They, they, they have, those, those are a relic because uh, what happened is that it became impossible for the Senate to do its business uh, so long as senators were on the floor trying to, to stop a, a, a bill. So there was a reform that made it, it was supposed to make it so the Senate could continue to do its work, even while a particular bill was being filibustered. But the result of that reform was to actually make filibustering the bill much easier. So right now, there's no requirement that you stand up on your two legs and read the telephone book or children's books. All you have to do is just notify that I'm going to filibuster a bill if you're a senator and boom, the bill is filibustered, which which means that in the hands of a minority party that's dead set against um, getting legislation done, the filibuster is a potent weapon to prevent things from getting done, which means that because Democrats don't have 60 votes in the Senate, they only have 50 plus the vice president to, to break any ties, it means that they're below the threshold of getting bills past the filibuster uh, threshold, which means that if they're going to get ambitious legislation done on things like antitrust, they're going to need Republican support. And Republicans have not indicated any support for an ambitious overhaul of antitrust law. All right, but there are some areas of bipartisan consensus to be found here. Could Democrats craft a bill if they find enough Republican support for that bill? There, there are some indications of uh, bipartisan support for uh, some very specific areas. Both parties, members from both parties, have indicated support for bumping up funding for enforcement at the uh, Department of Justice and the, the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, there's also a, a fairly bipartisan sense that uh, enforcers flubbed it over the past decade in not more closely scrutinizing tech mergers. So uh, it's possible that uh, they could get together a bill that uh, makes it easier uh, to challenge mergers. There's also some talk about enforcing some data portability requirements for social media platforms. What the Republican agenda is, or, or a good guideline for what the Republican agenda is, actually isn't too hard to find. Uh, Representative Ken Buck, who's a uh, Colorado Republican, put out a report in tandem uh, with uh, the, the Democratic staff report in the House Judiciary Antitrust Committee last fall. And, and he very explicitly indicated some areas of agreement, uh, such as the areas I, I've just rattled off. And could a bill uh, hewing to Republican areas of agreement pass immediately? Could it just, in fact, sail through Congress? You would think that it would, given that, that in order to find areas of, of uh, Republican consent, all we have to do is go back to this report from, from the man who is now the uh, ranking member uh, of the House Judiciary Antitrust uh, Subcommittee. But then we go back into this, this other phenomenon that, that's arise, and that is it's very difficult to talk about anything that touches on big tech, not to veer into allegations that 
these tech platforms, the same ones supposedly that you're targeting with antitrust legislation, are also biased against conservatives. So this is an accusation that's been floating around for a few years, and it gained particular currency during the last year of the Trump administration. There was a lot of anger, and uh, there was a concerted effort during that time to modify some of the protections that uh, allow online platforms to uh, freely engage in content moderation. And so you've already seen, we've already seen multiple times that when lawmakers are talking about anything that touches on big tech, including antitrust legislation, there'll be some members of Congress, Republican members, who bring up, well, we shouldn't do anything that doesn't restrict online platforms' ability to uh, silence conservatives. This obviously, as you can imagine, is a controversial issue and it could prevent a even a bipartisan bill from, from gaining full consensus. Now, the filibuster that we mentioned earlier, that is clearly an impediment here. But what are the prospects of uh, weakening the filibuster or getting rid of it entirely? So there is talk right now in in D.C. about uh, reforming or or potentially even getting rid of the filibuster. President uh, Joe Biden, uh, he, he spent his political career mostly in the Senate. And in the past, he signaled that uh, he's not very open to to getting rid of it because uh, he he he's a Senate traditionalist. He he believes in uh, bipartisanship in the Senate. At the same time, as the newly elected president of the United States, he has to confront the fact that it may be very difficult for the majority of his agenda to get through the Senate, so long as Republican senators can filibuster it. So he indicated that he might be open to a reform, getting rid of that 1970s era reform I, I mentioned earlier, where you don't actually have to stand up and talk in order to filibuster. He, he said that he would be, uh, could be open to restoring the need to actually literally filibust <laughs> uh, a, a bill in order for the filibuster to count. And if he supports that, then that might lead the door open to further reforms of the filibuster. It's pretty likely it would. The problem that he might encounter in in trying to uh, restore the necessity of actually doing an in-person filibuster on your own two feet in the Senate floor is is that uh, not necessarily even every Democratic senator is going to agree with that. Reporters have been going around asking Democratic senators if they support that. And there's a lot of other Senate traditionalists that, uh, that, that say that, that that's something that they may not necessarily agree with. Now, the big question is whether they continue to say that uh, a month from now or two months from now or six months from now. It, it'll very much depend on how much of Joe Biden's agenda is able to get through uh, through through Congress if the Senate surprises a lot of people and, and actually works on a bipartisan basis to uh, to get bills through, then this talk of getting rid of the filibuster may just disappear. Uh, if the Senate becomes a logjam and bills just pile up and nothing's happening, then you're going to see the pressure on uh, Democratic senators and on Joe Biden to to come out and get rid of it. 
although we can't rule out a return to the good old days of senators on their feet reading uh, War and Peace or the phone directory, so that might be something to look forward to, or maybe not. But David, it has been uh, great talking to you. As always, I'll catch you again very soon. My pleasure. Dave Pereira is an MLEX correspondent based in Washington, D.C., and will post a link to Dave's most recent analysis of how political uncertainty in the U.S. Capitol may affect the Biden administration's antitrust agenda. Our website is mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. And click on the News Hub tab for some of the highlights of our recent reporting and analysis. And while you're there, you may want to download our most recent special report. It's titled Pushing Back at Big Tech, and it looks at the revolution that is Australia's regulatory approach to the US-based technology giants. The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission's measures tackling Facebook and Google are reverberating around the world at the moment, and our Sydney correspondent Laurel Henning has brought together all of the many strands of the story that has been unfolding over the past couple of years. It's certainly worth a read, and it's free for you to download. Coming up, a Northern Irish Brexit flare-up. You're listening to MX's Regulatory Podcast, which is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. I'm James Panicki. The European Union has taken its first steps in launching legal action against the UK over the trade status of Northern Ireland. You'll remember that Northern Ireland, which is, of course, part of the UK, was central to the final Brexit deal between the UK and the EU. The Northern Ireland Protocol was designed to remove the need for border controls between Northern Ireland and Ireland, which is an EU member. The trade deal requires customs checks on some goods arriving from Great Britain. But now London has unilaterally demanded more time to manage the transition to the new regime, and that hasn't gone down well in Brussels. Jakob Krupa is a senior correspondent with MLEX's London team, and he joins me now. Um, Jakob, what, what is this really all about? I mean, why has the EU been so antagonised by these developments? So it all goes back to obviously years of negotiations about Brexit, and we, we all know how difficult and turbulent they were across years, basically, essentially. But this specific dispute is about um, Northern Irish protocol to this, which is essentially the the idea was that to protect the peace in Northern Ireland and continuous flow of goods between Northern Ireland and Ireland, the idea was to keep Northern Ireland as part of the EU single market for goods. And that they essentially, that's, that's obviously the EU feels about particularly strongly as someone who took part in the negotiation of the peace in Northern Ireland. Similarly, UK obviously doesn't want to go back to the difficult years of, of uh, you know, 80s and, and, and so on. Um, so everyone kind of wanted to find a way that when the UK leaves the European Union, at the same time, you can kind of keep the peace there and keep the goods flowing. The problem with that is that the solution found, which was initially rejected by UK government, was, as I said, to keep the Northern Ireland as part of the EU single market. And obviously that means that you have a different set of rules, a different set of um, controls that apply to that. And what UK did is essentially said the grace period, which is due to expire at the end of the month, is not enough. We need more time. Businesses need, need more time. And therefore we need to extend it unilaterally without even asking the EU. And the EU says, hang on a second, that's not what the agreement was. We should have a conversation about it. 
Well, Jakub, just tell us something about the grace period. Explain that concept to us. So essentially the idea was that there's some sort of transition period in which um, companies exporting from UK or GB, so Great Britain, to, to Northern Ireland would not necessarily have to follow all the steps as they normally would given that Northern Ireland is part of the EU single market for goods. Um, the idea was basically, given that the agreement with, between the EU and the UK was struck just, you know, literally literally on the Christmas Eve, um, and, and just a few days before the end of the year, the businesses had no time to prepare properly, so we, we give them some extra time. Now, the problem is, the UK feels that the time they were given is not enough. And indeed, we've had warnings, and we reported on them on MLEX, from businesses saying, this is reshaping our supply chains. This is really difficult if we, if we are to meet the April targets. That's going to be really, really complicated for our businesses. So in, in that sense, any kind of checks on agri-foods, parcels, pets, plants, all of that would now need to be subject to additional rules, essentially as if you were exporting to the European Union. And um, and again, the UK government says that's not really going to work out unless we unless we want to risk essentially collapse of trade with Northern Ireland. Okay, so the EU uh, responds to that by saying, look, we had a deal in place and and the deals need to be respected. So what happens next? I mean, clearly the EU is aggrieved, but where does it take this sense of grievance? The problem is that it's not the first time this happened. So last year already there was one conversation about um, UK internal legislation when the UK wanted to change it in a way that would undermine, as the EU said, um, what is in the Northern Irish Protocol. And back then, you said, again, this is horrendous. You should not be doing this. If you are serious about having good relationship with us after Brexit, um, you should change it. You should make sure that this all of this works properly. And in that sense, back then already, you said, we need, you, we need to start legal action against you. So this is, in a sense, the way that you looks at it. This is the second time this is happening. And they say, look, you've done it once. You know we don't like it. And you're now doing this again, despite the fact that we struck an agreement in December. And so, so the, the official answer from the European Commission is this is undermining trust. This is not helping us to have a meaningful conversation about what our partnership looks like in the future. And they started what's called an infringement procedure, which is essentially EU saying you're breaking international law. What is interesting in this, there are two letters that the UK got. One letter is a legal letter saying you are breaking the provisions of the protocol and the, and the agreement. You should not be doing this. Explain yourself. You have a month to do this and we'll have a conversation about it. The second letter is essentially a kind of political letter saying, please don't do this. It's not worth it. Just just don't do this. We are the start of a new partnership. Just don't ruin it. Okay, so, so it's a carrot and the stick approach, right? Very much so, yes. And obviously the hope is that, um, you know, legal pr- procedures in the EU and particularly this one could go all the way to the EU stop, stop court. This can take months, if not years. So the EU clearly says... We have so many more important things to do and deal with. Some of them were regulated by the agreement, some of them were not. And we need to we need to come to an agreement on this. Don't put all of that in, you know, in danger just because you want to do this. Well, what does this say about the state of uh, UK-EU partnerships more generally, in the sense that Brexit hasn't really kicked in, in the sense that this border that everyone talks about, the border in the Northern Sea, hasn't actually kicked in yet. But if this is the state of play now, it doesn't necessarily all go well for the future, right? I mean, obviously, in December, when the future partnership agreement was struck, the trade and, trade and partnership agreement, trade and cooperation agreement was struck, there was a lot of talk about, oh, finally, this is sorted out, Brexit done, move on. And we've always warned our readers on MLEX that this is not really the case, that this is actually the start of things. So there will be a lot of divergence, there will be a lot of kind of 
ironing difficulties and differences between both parties. And this is one of the one of one of those things. Um, the problem with with this is obviously this is a very high profile issue, um, and also uh, there's this additional element of vaccine wars between the UK and EU at the moment, with Ursula von der Leyen, European Commission president, saying this is the crisis of the century, and that she she basically wants UK to cooperate more, even is prepared to ban export of vaccines from the EU to the UK. Um, so having that all of that in mind, when you think about you know. All these words we've had back in December about we're going to be the best friends ever, even if we're not members anymore. Clearly, that is not going in the right direction. And, and this has very clear implications for other areas. One of the things we report on as well is data adequacy agreement, which is absolutely essential for trade between UK and EU. It underpins so much of that, obviously, in industries that use data, you know, banking, financial services. And, and a few days ago, European lawmakers had a debate about it after the European Commission published its draft decision last month. And they literally said, we can't trust the UK. We can't DC these decisions, even if you think we can. And the Commission says it's possible. And then the UK meets um, the conditions. But the lawmakers say, this is just wrong. Look what they're doing. How can we trust that? You know, we give them that decision and half a year later, they don't diverge from this. And we end up you know, having yet another legal fight on, on, on our hands. So I, th- I think this will be a very kind of high profile test of the, of the agreement and how strong it will be and how, how well we'll be able to, um, to keep it going forward. Does this clash over the status of Northern Ireland, be it political or legal or however it uh, pans out? Will it end up just being a very small footnote uh, in the history of, uh, of Brexit? Or do you think it's more significant than that as we as we move forward i think it's fairly central and and that's one of the one of the assumptions that uh, a number of member states have been doing during during the negotiations that oh you know northern ireland and some some countries literally i spoke to diplomats were like we don't care i mean whatever it's not we we care about our trade with the uk we care about so many other things but northern ireland this will be sorted out surely that's something for the commission in ireland to deal with but that's not true because essentially the question of northern ireland in a way, encapsulates the whole thing of Brexit. How you change the rules, what you can do, if, particularly if you have a, a, a land border with Ireland, which is still a member of the European Union, how do you deal with that? And what kind of controls you have to put in place so that Northern Ireland doesn't become, in a way, a place where you can you know, use it as, as a kind of loophole for all sort of EU, neg- EU regulations? So in that sense, it's, uh, I would say it's, it's, it's Brexit on steroids. And I think there will be a lot of questions around that. Even, even vaccines. I mean, the, the vaccine question, mind you, I mean, when, when Ursula von der Leyen first talked about uh, triggering Article 16 on trade, um, which is, uh, again, part of the Northern Irish Protocol, she was basically saying, we'll ban export of vaccines to Northern Ireland so we can't get them from Northern, Northern Ireland to the rest of the country. It is very, very central. And I think we'll be definitely writing about it a lot. And our readers hopefully will be reading about it a lot as well. Jakob, it's a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Take care. Thank you. Jakob Kruper, senior MLEX correspondent, speaking to me from London. Jakob has filed a story on this along with Joanna Sapinska, our trade reporter in Brussels, and it's at your disposal at the usual spot, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com. And sadly, that's all we have time for today. We'll be back in your feed next Friday morning, GMT. I hope you can join me then. I'm James Panicki, MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. And from everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Bye for now.